There's a handful of things in life that I know that I'm good at. Running a successful podcast, for one, a website, photography, menu consulting, etc. But one of the things where I need help is my gardening, specifically culinary gardening. It's one thing to have a nice succulent or a pretty plant to look at, but there's nothing like growing your own food, herbs, and more. That's why I turn to my friend and friend of the Best Seeds podcast, Ashley Irene of Heirloom Potage, for all things culinary gardening. She's an expert through and through who's worked with some of the best chefs and restaurants here in Orange County. Just see the work that she did up at the amazing Poppy and Seed in Anaheim, or some of the work she's doing with chefs like Zach Scher over at the Bellow Chef's Table. She's talented, witty, incredibly smart, and a consummate professional through and through. Whether you're running a restaurant program, a craft cocktail program, or you just want to start growing some great food at home, she has everything you need and more. So to get more information, set up a consultation, or just to see some of the things that she's done in the past, check out heirloompotage.com for more information. This episode of the Best Seats Podcast is brought to you by, well, you. To learn how you can support the show, go to thebestseats.com slash Patreon. Once there, you'll learn how you can get early access to shows, ad-free listening, the ability to submit questions, comments, concerns, and more. Once again, that's thebestseats.com slash Patreon. But enough of that. On to the show. What's up, everybody? Hello and welcome to the first ever episode 125 of the Best Seats podcast, the only podcast bringing you interviews with some of the most talented people in and around the hospitality community from right here in Orange County, where the show is based to the rest of Southern California and beyond each and every episode. As always, I'm your host, Crawford McCarthy, founder and principal of The Best Seats. Thank you to my friend, Allie Coyle. She provides music for the show. You can find more of her work at AllieCoyleMusic.com. Listen to her music on Spotify, or if you live here in Orange County, check out any of her family's three restaurants where you will find her slinging wines. That would be Fable and Spirit over in Newport Beach, Dublin 4 Gastropub, and Wine Works for Everyone. Those are sister restaurants over in Mission Viejo. If you are enjoying the show and you're listening on free feeds, whether that's Spotify, Apple, wherever that may be, please consider leaving a rating and or a review. It helps new audiences discover the show. You can go to thebestseats.com for more content just like this, the blog, merchandise, etc. But as always, the best experience is only found on patreon.com forward slash the best seats where so many of you support this show each and every month with your incredibly kind subscription contributions. Every dollar is deeply appreciated, and every dollar through Patreon goes back into the show, whether that's equipment, paying for websites, etc., whatever it may be. That is where you get early ad-free listening to each and every new episode, as well as woo, excuse me, as well as exclusive access to the bonus episodes. I almost lost it there for a minute, but we are good. I saved it, and it's a good thing I saved it because we got to talk about episode one hundred and twenty-five because I get to sit down with a very interesting person to talk about a very interesting product. My guest for this episode is Alex Gonzalez, owner of Honeypot Meadery. Now, mead is something that I was experienced to at very young, um, but it's, it's an interesting thing where not a lot of people are. You hear about mead as kind of a spirits category as a product, and you're like, 
what the hell is that? And that's a fair question that a lot of people ask. It's a very, very old way of making alcohol. It's ancient by many regards. A lot of people associated with Vikings and things like that. Um, anybody who's out there who's played a video game called Skyrim, you have definitely heard of mead. I mean, there's a million things that you associate with it, but I didn't associate, again, where I had it in my brain and then sitting down with Alex and then tasting through a bunch of his products before and afterwards and the times that I've had it before, it, it blew my mind. Um, and I really, really honestly mean that. It's a product that I wasn't ready for. And some of the flavors and the things that him and his team create are just wild. Um, there's really not much more to say about it. He's a great guy who really followed his dream. They have a killer little spot um, right on the beer trail up in Anaheim. It's an awesome spot. And by the way, um, if you're listening to this on Patreon right before it comes out, or I'm sorry, uh, right before it hits free feeds and comes out on that, um, Mead Day, like National Mead Day, is coming up first week in October. I want to say it's first week in October, about October 7th, um, whatever that day is. Um, they are hosting a massive, massive thing. So if you are listening to this on uh, Patreon, I think it'll just hit free feeds like the day before. So for any of you who don't subscribe on Patreon, I'm sorry. Um, unless you already have heard about it, you might be missing out. But it's going to be a really awesome time. So again, I don't want to take up any more of your time. You got a show to listen to. So go ahead and dig into episode 125 of the Best Seats podcast featuring Alex Gonzalez of Honeypot Meadery. Enjoy. Alex, thank you for taking the time to sit down today. Um, Honeypot is a place that I have been wanting to talk about for a while, and this is just the nature of the industry. I try and formulate in my head guests that I want to have on the show. All of a sudden, you blink. Six months has gone by, but now we are finally able to sit down, and I thank you for taking the time to do so because I'm incredibly excited to unpack everything kind of about your history, this place, and just mead in general, and not just mead, but everything that you guys do here. But before we dive into all of that, would you mind taking a second to introduce yourself and give a little bit of your background and kind of how we came to be where we're sitting today? Sure. Um, name's Alex Gonzalez. I own and operate Honeypot Meadery here in Anaheim. We are a meadery, not meatery. It's M-E-A-D-E-R-Y, which means we primarily make honey wine. Um, that being said... Technically, we're a winery, so we can make anything else that doesn't have any grain. Uh, so our menu's pretty big. We're what we like to call like the fun side of wine. It's everything that you don't expect or think of when you hear the word wine. Everybody thinks grapes, and that's, that's not us. We use grapes, but not, not often. Um, I started uh, homebrewing a little over 10 years ago, maybe 11 years ago. And for those they don't really know what meat is, uh, is essentially a wine made where the primary fermentable sugar is going to be honey. Um, honey, just like grapes, has a bunch of different varietals, right? It has a bunch of different locations that it can come from, and those are all going to impart different flavors. And we like to kind of pride ourselves on using as much local, um, local honey as we can, as well as local fruit. Long story short, I used to get uh, boxes from a, a trading partner for beer, long time ago getting boxes from the Pacific Northwest or from the Midwest, like Michigan, for things we couldn't get here in California. He sent me a box. It had a bottle of meat in it. I had no idea what it was. And I opened it one day with some friends from work, and it completely blew away any expectation I had of what a beverage could be. 
from how it tastes to how it smelled. And then the color didn't make sense for any of that. And the next thing was, how do I get more of it? And I couldn't. It wasn't possible. Um, meteries didn't really exist in California, save for you being closer to the bay. Uh, you had a rabbit's foot. Um, some people have seen Chaucer's at like BevMo, a very old uh, wine producer that makes mead. Uh, but that wasn't what I tried. It wasn't anything like that. So taking my, my technical background, which is as a um, software engineer, and understanding repetition and process and having made beer before, I decided to start making things at home. Um, about three years into that, which was probably when I was comfortable actually letting people try things because the first <laughs> two or three batches were not good. Um, I uh, let some people from work try it. They said, bring some more. Another year passes. I feel comfortable enough to enter a competition. And the first competition I entered, one of my meads took best in show. It's like, okay, well, maybe there's something here. Enter another competition. That wins another award. Okay. Now I've gone from making things on my kitchen counter to a second bathroom to a closet to almost having its own room. I needed to either get serious about this or start to dial things back. Serendipitously, I ran into this opportunity where I could invest in like some property or, you know, my retirement. And I went with my third option, which in hindsight was, was the right one, which was invest in myself and something I like to do. And if it fails, I can't blame anybody else but myself. Um, put a lot of faith in myself back then and the process I had started building. And in uh, 2018, we had our soft opening for our tasting room here in Anaheim. I mean, that's, it's, it's not an uncommon story, right? Whether you're home brewing, whether it's people that have even been making wine or something like that, that eventually this passion gets you, it hooks into you. And the same could even be said for chefs where you're like, okay, I'm going to bet on myself. I'm going to roll the dice and succeed with this. Obviously it's been successful, but what's it been like taking something to market? Because you mentioned your own experience when you discovered mead. Um, I, my brother got into it years and years ago, back when I was just discovering kind of different spirits and things like that. So I've known about it, but even with what I do for a living and, and writing about spirits or writing about wine, meat is still something that is still very foreign to me. And I think that that's probably true for a lot of people. I think that people associate it with, you know, it's kind of old school origins and things like that, but I think it's a very misunderstood product. It's one thing and it's scary enough to open a business in the hospitality world. It's another thing to do it with a product that not a lot of people are familiar with. What was the journey like for you basically kind of introducing it to now your customers and, and your fan base? So that's a really, Really good question, and there's a very broad answer. Um, but the uh, I'd like to think that our early success in from proof of concept to opening the tasting room to making it to our first year, um, and even our anniversary, our grand opening anniversary is in February. Um, three weeks after our first anniversary, we closed for a year because of the pandemic. Yeah. I still attribute all of our early success to all the big breweries in Orange County. From the brewery to Logic uh, to uh, Green Cheek to an extent. Um, even what some of the breweries that aren't really around anymore were doing in 
cultivating a very adventurous drinking community willing to try, you know, a stout with four or five adjuncts in it. Yeah. Or, you know, um, an IPA with additional stone fruit or tropical fruit added to it. All those flavor profiles are things that we also do just with a different base. We don't have that same roasty malt base or that super bitter alpha acid hoppy base, but you have all of those same fruits there. And being able to get somebody to try something the first time was always has has always and is still our biggest challenge. But once you try it, you see how that um, that gap can be bridged. Early on, it was going to events and being very active. And by that, what I mean is like jumping out and like, hey, getting people's attention. And do you like, you know, I see you're drinking this. Come and try this. It's, it's still like that. Um, you mentioned that meat is very, let's say, misunderstood. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people kind of grasp on to those, the few memories they have of meat, which would be like uh, Robin Hood or the Vikings or, you know, something like that. We mentioned Chaucer's. Like, that's, that's funny because it also plays a part in history. One of our biggest tenets as a company is public education. And public education comes in a couple different forms. The easiest one for us is in our tasting room. We do get a lot of people that come in saying it's been our first time. Um, we were at Bottle Logic and we were asking what's new and fun and people sent us over here. Or you know, when Taru was open, a lot of sour drinkers, like they naturally gravitate towards more fruit. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and us being on La Palma, on the beer trail, where in a three and a half mile stretch, there's 11 breweries. Like you get that crossover traffic and all of that was made possible by those bigger breweries early on getting people used to not being scared of trying new things being here on la palma was strategic like i lived in south county at the time um it was a 40 mile drive each direction to work it's it was a early on it was a very much a labor of love like you don't turn a profit right away. So you have to have faith in it. And being here and being right next to All American, we have a shared wall with. So you can come to our parking lot, you party, you can get beer, you can get meat, you can get cider, you can get seltzers, you can get everything. Um, a lot of that kind of contributed to us being where we are now. Um, I want to talk about, and this is going to be very, very kind of large and, and very, very broad, but I want to kind of give for people that may not understand the process. I think that there's an inherent understanding of you know, winemaking, distilling to some extent, beer making to some extent for some people. Everybody can kind of naturally grasp it. You mentioned that this is basically kind of a honey wine. Walk us through kind of for people that may not be familiar with this product or they've only heard of it in passing, like we mentioned, like Vikings and stuff like that. I mean, I'm sipping on one that you poured me um, this morning, which is like you mentioned it's coffee and lemon and just 2.3 ABV, beautiful little kind of morning sipper. Awesome, awesome, awesome product. This thing is light and delicate. Kind of give a little bit of a crash course on from concept to bottle of how mead comes to be. Sure. Um, where will we start? I mean, it's sort of unfair because you mentioned you have so many SKUs, you can do so much with yeah. it. I mean, there's really a lot that you can do. You mentioned. I, I like to think that where we start, we have a very, very blank canvas. If you think about traditional grape wine, you're really kind of beholden to those grapes, what that grape can be or what people expect that grape to be. Yeah. 
with beer, it's the exact same thing. It's you are for the most part restricted to that green bill for that style beer. You're going to use this malt. You're going to use this green. You're probably going to use these types of hops. And then you have variation afterwards. For us, it's an amazingly blank canvas. Um, and I say that because we ferment everything that we're allowed to. What does that mean? It means we can't use any grain because that would be a brewery. It means that we can't distill anything because that would be a distillery. That third type of alcohol is wine. Anything that isn't grain or distilled is wine. Apple cider, you guys think of, you know, oh, I've had Angry Orchard before. That's technically an apple wine. You need to be a winery to produce that. That being said, laws have changed recently in the state of California where in this not too distant future, there may be more people being, being able to produce apple ciders. Uh, but we also ferment out pineapples. We use um, stone fruit. So right now in our tank, we have something called STP, which is a nectarine in pineapple wine, where it's 80% nectarine juice, 20% pineapple juice, uh, and a couple little other things we add to it. It's just this beautiful, floral, fragrant drink that's sitting at like 5.5%, easy to drink. We use honey, we can ferment agave, we can ferment maple syrup. There's all of these natural sugars in nature that we can use that we're really surprised most people don't use. A lot of breweries will use them partially, but they have to be at least 51% grain in their grain belt for it to be considered a beer. For us, we're not restricted to that. So if we want to make a drink uh, that is primarily honey, but we want it to mimic the characteristics of, say, a Merlot. You think about a Merlot, you're probably going to have some really dark fruits, some dark plums, some dark cherries. Um, you might get some, a little bit of spiciness off of it. Well, if we're not using those grapes, what's to say we can't use all of those fruits you just described? I can make a mead that, uh, I actually have one on the shelf right now that's bone dry, um, that the backbone for it is buckwheat honey, which is a very robust, dark, uh, unctuous honey, all kinds of body on it. And we added blackberries, blueberries, raspberries, black currants, and then aged it in a cab barrel that before that was a, a dickel whiskey barrel. Uh, so we are essentially the third use on the barrel, completely dry, no residual sugar, tons of tannin from all that skin on the, um, on the bramble berries, yeah. tons of tannin from the wood and the barrel it was just in. And, you'd be surprised how many people would come in um, seeing that we have a sign that says wine on it and say, can I have the red? And we pour them that and they don't know what it is, but they like it. Um, you asked about like formulation and making things. We use 80% of the same equipment as a brewery. The only thing we don't have is a hot side. We don't make any, we don't have to boil anything. Um, for our process, what that means is everything needs to be super sanitary going into the process. You have a little bit of leeway as a brewery where if you're boiling something, you're transferring it over and you're, it's hot, like you're, you're killing any bacteria that's in there if they're yeah. boiling long enough. With us starting fermentation and blending everything at you know, 68 degrees, 70 degrees, we don't have that luxury, so everything needs to be clean. Everybody needs to have their equipment on so that everything's sterile. And from there, it's essentially, we, don't, we just don't have to render out our sugar. That's what your, your mash is. That's what your boil is. It's you're rendering out your sugar and you're condensing it into whatever alcohol content you want. For us, it's just blending our fruit and our honey until we get the potential alcohol. And then 
we're kind of off to the races. I mean, the the one that I'm currently sipping on, the one that you mentioned as an example, you know, this you mentioned was two something, or two point something ABV. That one was five something ABV. These are obviously lower. These are more kind of they drink along those same levels as some beers, where it is a lower kind of overall alcohol content. What is the range that you work with as far as like an overall? I mean, how high can you push this thing? And does it at that point change? Because once you get over a certain alcohol content, obviously stipulations come in. And from a from a legal standpoint, yeah. you can go up to twenty five percent. Okay, uh, that's that's pretty damn good. I mean, well, you'd be you'd be hard pressed to find a yeast that will naturally go up to twenty five percent. Yeah, uh, the hottest we've ever had something run uh, is usually our pineapple uh, enzymes and pineapple. The yeast just go apeshit, uh, for lack of a better term. <laughs> Um, that ferments with pineapple are probably half the time of anything else. Okay. Uh, so we really have to manage our, um, our process with that. But we've done stuff as low as two. I think the highest we've actually put on tap was a little over 19. Okay. Yeah. And, um, even that one, that one wasn't a mead. That was actually a fruit wine with, uh, lychee and, uh, Sauvignon Blanc. Um, so just two juices um, got uh, blended and aged in. What was that? That was in a white pork barrel, maybe? Portuguese white pork barrel. Um, probably the closest thing you'd get to a sauterne produced in Orange County uh, in terms of flavor profile. That's awesome. Very unique. Um, amazing with some creme brulee. Oh my God. But. Uh, yeah, we kind of run the gamut in terms of alcohol content, and it all really comes down to, to flavor balance. Um, a lot of the times, we'll make a, a cider a little bit stronger than we may normally serve, and the purpose for that just ends up being when we go to balance its sugar um, or its acid, alcohol adds body. It adds texture, and that's not something we can reintroduce post-fermentation. Yeah. So it's easier to go high, and then if it's a little too harsh, uh, to blend that down with maybe a cider that had less sugar in it um, rather than try to find a way to compensate for that, that lack of um, you know, structure that you have. How is mead viewed by the rest of kind of the, the spirits and wine and beer world? I mean, because again, they're all very different animals. They're all culturally very different animals. You know, some have a little bit more gatekeeping than others. Some are very kind of defensive and closed off. Some are a little more open. And it can even change within each one of those industries. But how does everyone else kind of in the let's make booze world view mead as kind of a product and a process? That's a harder question to answer kind of outside of the bubble here. Yeah. And I say the bubble because Orange County uh, and to a larger extent, San Diego, the craft beverage community, for the most part, is very welcoming, uh, whether you're yeah, a distillery agreed. Or uh, a winery, you know, primarily guys in Temecula, um, or a brewery, or even a meadery. There's uh, maybe 13 or 14 meaderies in California, and like 11 of them are in Southern California. Wow. Okay. And, uh, I mean, we're the only one in Orange County. Uh, if you're going to go anywhere else close to here, you need to be going up to Carson um, or to Temecula. There's two guys in Temecula that opened the last two years, I want to say. Yeah. Um, just post-pandemic. Um, and they've done, they've done fairly well for themselves. It really comes down to who you talk to. Uh, the brewing, brewing community here is part of the reason I opened here in Anaheim. I made a very conscious effort to reach out to a lot of the breweries and breweries and planning through the Brewers Guild when I was getting started 
to feel out both how we were going to be received as well as see where I was going to have friends, you know, for, for lack of a better way of like explaining it as a, a new business owner, you know, if I had a pump fail or something else, like I, there aren't a lot of meteries. I mean, five, six years ago, there was half of what there is now in California. Yeah. So I was going to need help and I wanted to be prepared. And the Brewers Guild for Orange County was amazing. Um, everybody was welcoming from, uh, from the top down, from the board to, you know, even the newest members at the time, which All American opened less than a year before we did. And they were part of the guild. And they actually are the ones that put me onto this spot. It was a clothing store that was on the market, but not on the market. And I had been looking for at least six months uh, for a place somewhere around here um, on, the, on the La Palma Beer Trail. And I couldn't find anything that worked. Everything kept falling through. And seeing like they were going to be next door, we had already started a good relationship like every, you know, um, every month at our meetings just talking about what's going on and how things are and ridiculously welcoming. People and spirits, we work with a number of distilleries directly doing barrel exchanges and things like that. They've been awesome. Wineries, on the other hand, I haven't had, I can't say I've had the same experience with. One of the things I did before opening a brick and mortar here in Anaheim was the, the technical side of me was don't throw all of your money into something if you can't prove that it's going to work. I needed mm-hmm. a proof of concept. To do that, I wanted to do what, uh, what's called a custom crush. So use a winery to make my own wine using their production license and then essentially sell it under my own label. So I went through all of the exercises with uh, on the federal side, on the state side of getting licenses to be able to distribute myself. I wanted to do that before talking to anybody because I know that's the first question they're going to ask. And I reached out to the wineries in Orange County. And there are wineries in Orange County. Yeah, there are. Um, which most people don't even think about. There are production wineries in Orange County, especially in Silverado Canyon. And nobody would return my calls, return emails. The two people I did talk to, they're like, yes, we're technically a winery, but really we just function as a satellite tasting room. And nobody wanted to work with me because I wasn't using grapes. The solution I ended up finding was Golden Coast Meadery in Oceanside had been open for about two years at that point. Mm -hmm. They were expanding. They had went from one production, like one building with production to then having a second unit in their complex that was strictly production. And they offered to let me do a custom crush there. It wasn't cheap, but it was cheaper than going into something and failing. For that, I am eternally grateful. I made 10 barrels of mead there. That turned into three different skews. I took half of that, put it in a bourbon barrel, put it in a rye barrel, then had a non-barrel aged one. Went to market with three different things and sold out of the 120-ish cases in like four months. Wow. Just okay, going yeah. shop to shop in Orange County. Will you try this? Will you put it on the shelf? And uh, they were awesome. So... Most craft producers have been great, um, but everybody kind of has, it's like you said, some people are protective, like, oh, it's another winery coming and doing something. Yeah. I can, I can understand. I can understand that. Not everybody's going to want to be your friend right away. Not everybody knows who you are, especially when you're, at that point, nobody. Well, there's only so much capital to go around, especially following the pandemic yeah. where 
you know, between recession and inflation and things like that, numbers are even harder to, you know, excise out of customers. My expectation there was that a winery would be the easiest, um, the easiest opportunity because most wineries, you're doing your crush, you know, between September, October, November, uh, you're fermenting out for a month, maybe two, depending on your process and everything's going in wood and your equipment is, is just sitting there not being utilized. Like I will pay you to use your tanks for their foot, their footprint, for their time. I will pay for all my own ingredients. Um, when I worked down in, uh, I say worked, um, and at Golden Coast, I took three weeks off of work. I drove down to Oceanside every day, um, not only tending to this giant batch of mead, which was this huge investment. I mean, honey has actually increased probably 50 or 60% in costs since then, but huge investment. Uh, and not only did I get to use their tanks, but sit there and pick their brains and see how some of the bigger equipment worked going from making, you know, five or 10 gallons of something at home in, in a plastic carboy or a, a, a bucket to these giant stainless steel jacketed uh, tanks that can keep a temperature exactly where you want it and how to feed something that big without having overflow and doing lab work and doing cell counts. Like that, uh, that experience is something that I'll never forget. Yeah. And uh, it's something that even now when we have new hires in production, like I go over, this is all the stuff that I learned. This is, you know, how we're going to do things. Never be afraid to ask questions. And like the door is always open to learn things. Uh, and it's been like that with home brewers too that come in. Like there's not a lot of us that, that use honey as a, a primary sugar. So we're not going to be that gatekeeper of our, you know, we'll keep our, our recipes ours, but the process, I mean, if you really had the time to investigate, like you could find it. Um, but we're not going to keep that from you. We just did a mead making class at Windsor uh, a month and a half ago. Yeah. Uh, and we actually did one there and at O'Shea's the same day on a Saturday nice. for home fermentation day and had like 40 people at each one. Shout out to both of them, by the way, all those Windsor great. and them rock. Um, I want to talk about honey itself. I've, I've seen honey utilized on the distilling side. Um, anybody who's ever had Bar Hill gin, that's their primary sweetener. That's up in Vermont. You know, no lack of real bees up there, but you know, when we talk about kind of ecology and the environment, bees are always a major thing that come up. Obviously, we need them to pollinate. There's a whole bigger ecological conversation that could be had with them. But honey, you know, I always joke whenever you ever go to a farmer's market, you get all the produce and then there's that one person selling honey and that shit is expensive, which makes sense. Keeping bees is not an easy job. I, I think what apiary is what it's called or something like that. Apiary. Yeah, yeah. How are you sourcing this from? I mean, because honey, like grapes, does have a natural terroir. Mm -hmm. Bees from here are gonna, their honey is gonna taste different from here. Their environment is gonna change. There are different flavored honeys and things that you can do to it, you know, after the fact, but just in its raw form, you will get different terroir and flavor. How are you sourcing your honey? I mean, are you just going over and knocking over stands at the Irvine Farmer's Market? I mean, how are you, because I imagine that, you know, this is a pretty good scale production. I mean, going on behind us in this tasting room, I'm imagining it's a lot of honey. Yeah, that's, uh, that was how it started, actually, uh, going to the farmer's market in Laguna Niguel mm -hmm. and buying a gallon at a time, which a gallon is about 12 pounds. And they must miss you. Well, it's, <laughs> it's kind of graduated from going, you know, buying a gallon to last week I picked up uh, about a half a ton in the car. That is a lot of bee juice. Yeah, it yeah. really is. Uh, we use 80 to 85% of our honey is going to come from California. Okay. We try to stay as local as we can. Mm -hmm. 
It's really something we're very thankful for being where we are. Like the agricultural industry in California is amazing. That doesn't just include the bees. That's all of the fruit we get too. And all of that has to be pollinated somehow, right? We use a lot of orange blossom. The majority of that is going to come from the Central Valley. Mm-hmm. But like you said, there's a specific terroir, right? Sometimes we'll get it from just north of the grapevine. Sometimes, depending on the time of year, it comes from all the way up next to Yosemite Valley. And those can change flavor profile. And we get a lot of buckwheat and alfalfa and sage from anywhere from San Clemente all the way down to city center in San Diego. We get star thistle honey from Northern California up closer to like Humboldt. The honey that we don't get locally is stuff that you just cannot get locally. It just does not natively occur in California. Stuff like meadow foam or um, palmetto, which comes out of Florida. Um, Some star thistle, you have to go to other places. Like really good clover, you're talking about like Montana. But we use as much local as we can. Same thing for our fruit. We get a lot of fruit from some of the same people we met at farmer's markets five, six, seven years ago. And it went from buying a couple bags of stuff to, oh, hey, the citrus season's coming to an end. We have 25 crates of blood oranges that we're not going to be able to move at the farmer's markets. Can you guys use those? Absolutely. We're going to take those right away. Um, Honey really does change a lot. And to that extent... We treat every batch of mead that we make using that same type of honey, like orange blossom over orange blossom, as, I'm not allowed to say this, but as its own vintage. Why I say we're not allowed to say this is as a meadery, because we're not using grapes, we can't put the word vintage on a bottle. But it's the best way to kind of analogize. Kind it, of, it yeah, is. Basically, it's, it's an analogy. It's common form, understanding. Like yeah. a vintage is when something was made. It's just part of the lexicon. Yeah, but we're not allowed to do that because it's not grapes. Legally, we are not allowed to on a label put grape the word mafia. Vintage. Grape mafia. So you know, there may be a little bit of resentment there for whoever got that legislation passed. Can you use a synonym? Anything like that? No, it's really we, that strict. Yes, we can put. <laughs> we'll put like the batch number, and I've kept a log of okay, this batch was made at this time. It was using honey from this place. And that's wild that you really can't put like the, the quote unquote vintage and the year. We're not allowed to put the year. That's someone has to, anybody listening, come up with something. I don't like name it after Seinfeld seasons or something like this. This one's a Kramer that denotes an odd number, something (laughs) like that. Like (laughs) that's not a bad idea. Um, The real reason I started keeping track of that. I didn't think it was going to be a thing. I didn't think the honey was going to change that much was once we got to maybe our third or fourth batch of prelude, which is a traditional mead. Traditional mm-hmm. mead being water, honey, and yeast, that is all. Right? The cleanest fermentation you can get, three, three ingredients, save for some nutrients you might add to help the yeast along the way. And going from one batch to the next one, we had customers asking, like, hey, did you add this to it? Like, no, no, we didn't. And the flavor they were picking up, oddly, was, uh, was menthol. Interesting. Which didn't okay. make any sense to me, and I didn't pick up on it until um, we save bottles of everything we make to kind of go back and compare them batch to batch next to each other yeah. or to see if there's any spoilage or to let people know, oh, this bottle from three years ago is drinking great right now. 
and I pulled a sample from three or four months ago, and then the fresh batch, it's like, okay, there's something different. Go back to the apiary we were using. Hey, this lot number was on the buckets. What's different? Nothing's different. Same farm. Okay. Something's different. Like, can you check? They come back two weeks later. It's like, so about that, uh, that honey you're asking. Turns out that specific orchard's the same orchard. Uh, typically, the area around that orchard is barren. They don't really use that land for anything. But last season, because of the rain, it was really heavy, a lot of moisture in the, in the, in the soil. They decided to plant mint next to it. Oh, okay. And bees will routinely travel as far as two miles in any direction from their hive to scavenge for, for food. Mm -hmm. So they came back and they're like, yeah, there might've been a little bit of mint. It's still predominantly orange. Like, no, it was definitely orange. We got that citrus note on it, that, you know, that honeysuckle and a little bit of mint in there. So next time the customer came in, I was like, you're absolutely right. This is what happened. Your palate's amazing. Next time I release something, please come in and taste it. Like I could use your palate. And uh, yeah, since then we've been tracking everything. So That's awesome. Yeah. Um, for anybody who hasn't been here before to the tasting room, um, I mean, you guys opened at 5 p.m. Obviously we're doing this kind of pre-shift. You guys have been bottling the past couple of days and, and you know, obviously in the process constantly. What could somebody um, expect from a trip up here to Honey Pot? Depending on the day, there's always something going on. We try to make sure that it's, it's fun. You're not going to be bored being here. Mm -hmm. Besides our tenant of education, one of the other ones is you're going to find something that you're going to like. And how do we achieve that? By having this huge catalog of things you can try, whether it's something that's on tap, uh, something that's in our, um, our like icy machine. We have a bottle catalog of things that we can do bottle pours for people. And it's not uncommon for us to have over 40 things that you can try. We have trivia nights and board game nights where people come in and play magic. We do D&D &D sessions every other Sunday. Uh, most nights we have a food truck of some sort here. Uh, and then sprinkled in between, we have all of these other events that we do. Um, we try to do one big thing every, uh, every quarter. This next one being National Mead Day, which is kind of a big deal for us. It actually got moved this year, which was a... Odd point of contention for our industry. Uh, it's always the first Saturday of August. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden it's in October. How that happens, I still don't really understand. Uh, but uh, first meet, our uh, first Saturday of October, October 7th, is National Mead Day. So we do this giant party and bottle release. And we have games and you know all kinds of food trucks. And you're always going to find something you're going to like to drink. Hopefully something you like to eat. And... And you're going to have a good time here. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I want to ask about the games and things like that because it's a burning question in my mind, but I'm going to save that question for the bonus episode that we're going to do. Um, I want to start to wind down this main episode, but if people wanted to learn more about Honey Pot, kind of about you guys, if they want to come in and, and discover mead for themselves, social media, websites, things like that, where can people find you guys at? So we have all of that. Uh, we do have a regular website that has an event calendar on it that says every event that we have going on in our tasting room, whether that's something as simple as just the food truck for the day to something that is as extravagant as this weekend, which is kind of an anomaly for us. We have three events going on in one day. Uh, it's, uh, and this, is, this probably goes into more of the, the video game culture and stuff, so to speak, that we have here. We actually have a BattleBots tournament this weekend. Nice. Uh, we host that 
uh, like twice a year with the Southern California group. There's like 40 something. Robots. We're talking about like remote control, like robots that kick the crap out of each other. Yes, sir. Okay, the eight-year-old in me just got super excited. And they set up arenas in our parking lot. They're like 10 by 10. They're huge. And we have that along with the Your Behind Wellness Fair. Uh, so I have like 20 different wellness and like food vendors and um, you know like exercise and gyms that are going to be here and all this other stuff. And we have a yoga class in our barrel room all on the same day. Um, <laughs> that is so, so if you ask what to expect that is a cavalcade of different personalities and people that are going to be cruising and through all day that's barbecue, awesome so it's like that's awesome uh, all that can be found on our website through social media whether it's uh, Facebook or Instagram we really don't do the Twitter thing too much um, we post every day uh, just to kind of remind people if there's food or if for some reason there's not going to be food and in the tasting room, uh, you can find me here every other Friday if you really want to ask them some crazy questions. If not, our tasting room staff is extremely knowledgeable. Um, if you're a home brewer and you want to bring some samples by for us to try and give you feedback, we're all about helping home brewers try to figure out their, awesome. their process and their recipe. And uh, we look forward to, to seeing people come by. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you so much for the time for this main episode. Like I said, I'm going to keep you around for a bonus episode, which people can find over on Patreon if they want to. But in the meantime, thank you for taking the time. I have learned a ton. Um, and I, I thought that I knew what I was kind of talking about to begin with, but I had no idea that the range was this wild and that the potential was this wild. And it's a really cool concept. And for anybody to open and then have to close right with COVID and then come out, especially with something not unknown, but maybe misunderstood, and then to be doing something really, really good, which is making people understand and, and giving them a great product, I, I think is really awesome. Not that the very bonus awesome. episode is going to have some fun uh, talk about getting through a year of closure after being open for a year <laughs> and how to manage that. That was, that was a very interesting time. Yeah, I fully believe that. Uh, thank you for the time, man. Cheers to continued success and, and excited to see what you guys continue to do. Appreciate it, Crawford. Thank you. Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down, man. Thank you for tasting me on your products and letting me come in and recording that show. Again, pre-shift, the guys were in the back brewing, they had the chillers on, things like that. I mean, it's just, it's always, I'm always humbled whenever anybody agrees to do the show. So thank you so much to the team at Honeypot for letting me invade your space. Thank you to Alex once again for taking the time. Thank you first and foremost, especially to everybody who supports on Patreon. You make this show possible, whether you are at that lowest tier, norm status at $15 month advertising tiers whatever it is thank you hey if you're interested in advertising go to patreon you can learn more information or reach out to me on instagram at the best seats photography stuff is at the best seats studio etc thank you for everybody who listens on free feeds thank you everybody who is continuing to support restaurants if you're here in orange county i'll be seeing you at pacific wine and food i will hopefully see you on national mead day if i can swing it over there's so many events coming up and even more shows everybody stay safe out there don't drink and drive tip your bartenders be well stay safe and i'll see you soon Take care. The Best Seats Podcast is an original production of The Best Seats. It is written, edited, produced, and owned by myself, Crawford McCarthy, founder and principal of The Best Seats. It's based in Orange County, California. It is subsidized through generous monthly donations at patreon.com forward slash the best seats. The following are the names of those who subscribed at the highest monthly tier, aka norm status, and allow me to continue producing this show each and every month. As a thank you for their continued support, 
Here are the names. Serena Warino, George Pavlov, Eric Lutz, Paige Reardon, Loco Lipo, Tim Falk, Burrito No Rito, Sasha Lyons, Subtle Bubbles, Jay Baker, Tim Swine, Burger Master, It Ain't Easy Being Greasy, Boyga Kang. Thank you for your support.